Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 135, The Underground Railroad on Boston Harbor. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about the network of abolitionists and sympathizers in 19th century Boston who helped enslaved African Americans find their way to freedom in the northern states or in Canada. It's a topic we've talked about before, but this time there's a twist. We're going to be examining how Boston's position as an important port city changed the dynamic of seeking freedom. National Park Service Ranger Sean Quigley is going to join us in just a few moments to teach us how the Underground Railroad ran right through Boston Harbor. But before we talk about the Maritime Underground Railroad, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Discovering the Boston Harbor Islands by Christopher Klein. As long as we're talking about the harbor and the harbor islands today, we thought it would make sense to share a guidebook with you. As we may have mentioned before, the harbor islands are some of our favorite places in greater Boston. Whether we're sitting around a bonfire on the beach, watching the sunset behind the Boston skyline, skipping stones on quiet waters, or crawling into the hidden passages of a World War I-era fort, exploring the Boston harbor islands is a great way to spend a day. Klein's book is arranged as an island-by-island guide, focusing on the geography and available recreational opportunities on each one. The whole thing is richly illustrated with photos, maps, and historic images. There are long historical sidebars about events that took place on different islands, as well as commentary on modern environmental challenges. Here's how the publisher's website describes the book. Discovering the Boston Harbor Islands is an indispensable resource for those who want to uncover the best-kept secret in the Northeast. Part history, part travel guide, this book is the most compelling invitation to explore the Boston Harbor Islands National Park area to date. Complete with resource listings of recreational activities on and around the Harbor Islands and richly illustrated with over 150 full-color photographs, Christopher Klein's comprehensive coverage and keen wit are sure to inspire thousands of landlubbers and mariners to leave port for many summers to come. Explore the military installations that protected Boston during wartime, including Fort Warren home of Confederate prisoners during the Civil War. Visit Boston Light on Little Brewster, site of the nation's oldest lighthouse. Kayak into the coves where pirates and bootleggers once hid. Wander the meadows that were the camps of Native Americans and the sites of revolutionary skirmishes. Sail to the Outer Islands, a spectacular ocean wilderness. Find the best year-round fishing spots and discover why the islands are a birder's paradise. Dive amid century-old shipwrecks or climb to the top of Spectacle Island for an altogether different view of the Boston skyline. Take in a jazz concert, an antique baseball game, or simply hop from one island to the next to experience the stunning natural beauty of this most storied national park area. Discovering the Boston Harbor Islands is sure to resonate with new and veteran islanders. Whether it's hiking, camping, a trip through history, or a simple getaway to spend a day at the beach— A visit to the Harbor Islands offers an outdoor experience wholly unique to the geography and heritage of Boston. Don't leave port without it. And we will have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. And for the upcoming event this week, we're featuring a talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Since this week's episode deals with the enslavement of humans and resistance against that practice, we thought having a related event would be a good idea. Few antebellum lawmakers pressed the issue of slavery as consistently or persistently as John Quincy Adams. The opinion of this podcast is that he got his conscience on the issue from one source, his mother. 
Though Abigail Adams grew up in a family that enslaved people, she always detested the practice as an adult. In 1774, she wrote, I wish most sincerely that there was not a slave in the province. It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me. Fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. You know my mind on the subject. Many years later, she fought for equal access to education, writing in 1797, The boy is a freeman as much as any of the young men, and merely because his face is black is he to be denied instruction? Is this the Christian principle of doing to others as we would have others do to us? Edith Gels from Stanford University will be plumbing this topic in more depth in a talk called The Peculiar Institution, Abigail Adams and Slavery, on June 26th. Here's how the MHS describes the event. Edith Gels, a senior scholar with the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, is an award-winning historian and author of Abigail and John, Portrait of a Marriage, and of Portia, The World of Abigail Adams. Gels will discuss her current research on Abigail's thoughts and experiences with slavery and race. The talk starts at 6 p.m., and it costs $10 unless you're an MHS member or an EBT cardholder. We'll have a link to the information you need in this week's show notes. Now, before I sit down with Sean Quigley to talk about the Maritime Underground Railroad, I just want to mention our Patreon campaign. If you're still listening, it means you're probably a history nerd like we are. And like any good history nerd, we love having the opportunity to tell our favorite stories about our favorite city. As you can probably tell, this is a 100% independent operation. We're not backed by Venture Capital or one of the big podcast networks or even one of our wonderful local history organizations. It's just Jake and usually Nikki and a couple of microphones. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us keep this independent podcast rolling by offsetting the cost of making the show. If you're interested, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Thanks to everyone who already supports the show and thanks to you for signing up today. And now it's time for this week's main topic. For the past seven years, Sean Quigley has been a ranger at the National Parks of Boston, where he leads tours and gives talks interpreting Boston's black history. Sean Quigley, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jake. A pleasure to be here. Our listeners may not know the term Maritime Underground Railroad, but almost everybody has some sort of mental image of the Underground Railroad. Maybe they think of Harriet Tubman leading people out of Maryland, people stopping in safe houses, hiding under a false floor when the bounty hunter comes to the door. How close is that image to reality? What what was the Underground Railroad actually like? I think that those things, you know, absolutely existed. Uh, I mean, right here in Boston, we have a home, the Lewis Hayden home, where you had a tunnel that existed in the basement. So that was a part of the reality when people, a lot of people think of the Underground Railroad, you know, it really is something that is almost kind of swept up in American mythology in a sense of we know similar to like Paul Revere's ride that it existed, but that, you know, almost doesn't seem real. But this was very real and it was very intricate. It was not necessarily this loose network. People were organized. People knew what they were doing and they, were really instrumental in helping individuals escaping from enslavement gain their freedom on their way north to Canada. That reminds people what the Underground Railroad itself was. 
But then you also add this additional layer of the Maritime Underground Railroad. What was that all about? So many fugitives when escaping, talking about the Underground Railroad, you know, we do, as we said, we think of kind of, you know, those trapdoors, overland routes. But for many fugitives, especially those living in port cities, the easiest way to gain their freedom is via ship. I mean, for example, one fugitive named Shadrach Minkins, who I know that you have talked about before. Yeah, sure. When he escapes, he stows away in a boat. Because, for example, Norfolk, Virginia to Boston is about 567 miles away. That's obviously a long way to go if you're going on an overland route. But with a good breeze, if you're on a boat, you're going to get there in about four days. It is the quickest way to gain freedom. And there were really many ways that fugitives went about gaining their freedom this way. As a stowaway, you could find a sympathetic ship captain. You could find somebody who was a sailor or a dockhand, maybe could pay them off to help get an individual on board, or just in general, you know, an individual escaping from enslavement could just sneak on that ship themselves. So obviously must have been a a risky act if Southern society was sort of entirely structured around keeping African-Americans enslaved at that time. How do you think that approach would be? How would you know that you could approach a sympathetic sailor or a dockhand for assistance? So port cities themselves, and this is all throughout the East Coast, this is a very diverse and mobile workforce. There were free and enslaved African-Americans working side by side in these port cities. And Working on the docks, knowing these ships, being familiar with people that are coming in and out of these port cities, it was a really strong network. Uh, there was one historian who is quoted saying that the maritime culture provided runaways a complex network of informants, messengers, go-betweens, and other potential collaborators. So there are a lot of people that you can talk to, especially if you have been on the docks or working in these port cities for a really long time. You're going to be able to know your way around and word would spread pretty quickly. What would the consequences be like if you chose poorly, if you were caught um, trying to make the, the arrangements to escape? So I think this speaks to how brave somebody would have to be to make almost that impossible decision to escape from enslavement, right? I mean, you if you escape and you are caught, you could be sold further south to, you know, brutal sugar plantations where life expectancy is under 10 years. Families that you have could be split up, could be brutally beaten, whipped. And this also... On the other hand, if a ship captain is caught, uh, there's an example of a ship captain by the name of Jonathan Walker who was helping fugitives escape. And this is a very famous image, uh, but it's an image of his hand. He's actually branded when he is caught with an SS on his hand for slave stealer. <laughs> you would lose as a ship captain, you know, could lose business interests, and then also, in some instances, arrested, and even in some states, actually hung. So this is a risky venture for both sides, but obviously, I think the risk is much higher for those actually escaping from enslavement, because if you are caught, you know, 
with that family separation idea, with the idea of being sold or sell, brutal torture, brutal beatings, this is this is not something for the faint of heart. If you were able to successfully make your way onto a ship, get out to sea, are you safe at that point? Or are there continued dangers um, from there on out? The dangers when you get out to sea are absolutely not over. Stowing away on a ship, you're not staying in a cabin or anything like that. It's descriptions you know, from individuals escaping from enslavement on boats are talking about cramped, dark, uncomfortable places. You're, you have a limited food supply. You can only carry what you have. If a ship, there's an unfavorable wind, you could be stuck at sea for weeks instead of the day long, multiple day long journey that you think it's going to take. There's also bad weather, shipwrecks, and obviously the enslavers are individuals who don't want to lose the people that they have enslaved. So they will go to great lengths before a ship has, you know, even really left the harbor or is just out to sea to board it, will smoke out vessels on occasion to try and have fugitives literally come up for air. So what's that process of smoking out? I saw that in some of your notes. What, What does that mean to smoke somebody out? They would walk through ships, they would burn sulfur, they would have everybody off the ship and burn sulfur inside the ship to literally make it borderline impossible to breathe. Yeah, that sounds terrible. That's a, it's a phrase that we're used to hearing to smoke somebody out or smoke something out, but I had no idea where it came from. I can only imagine what something like that would be to go through. But despite all these risks, fugitives still escaped via ship, as a stowaway, constantly. There's actually one newspaper from Wilmington, North Carolina, who wrote, it is an almost everyday occurrence for our Negro slaves to take passage aboard a ship and go north, and that the Underground Railroad through the harbor was an evil, which is getting to be intolerable. So we have this network in southern port cities that's helping people who are seeking freedom find their way onto ships that are headed north, ships that might be coming into Boston was the the other end, sort of the northern end of what you were calling the Maritime Underground Railroad unique to Boston, or was it active in other northern port cities as well? It was absolutely active in other northern port cities as well. You know, New York, New Bedford especially. There are a lot of strong anti-slavery communities in northern port cities because similar to the South, this is a mobile and a diverse workforce. There are a lot of job opportunities working in shipping, working on docks, and naturally that attracts a wide variety of people, including strong African-American communities. And with strong African-American communities, they become natural safe spaces for individuals escaping from enslavement to land. So you gave a pretty dramatic example of how this network worked. Uh, with the example of a ship called the Ottoman that came to Boston in 1846. And on their way into the harbor, the crew stopped for a a drink, essentially, on Spectacle Island. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so I think this also speaks to the idea that even if you make it to a northern port city, literally within sight of Boston, you're not necessarily safe. In September of 1846, uh, there is a ship called the Ottoman that does come into Boston Harbor. A fugitive named George is discovered on board. Uh, the captain, after discovering the fugitive, is waiting for basically favorable winds to take that individual 
back south, specifically to New Orleans. And while he's waiting for favorable winds, as you said, he he goes on Spectacle Island when there used to be two hotels there to grab a drink. George seizes yet again another opportunity to try to gain his freedom and literally steals this captain's rowboat, takes off to South Boston. The captain realizes what has happened. He has four other individuals with him. They grab another boat, chase him to South Boston, and a two-mile foot race ensues over fences, through cornfields, where finally George is apprehended at a bridge by this captain. A crowd has gathered. The captain swears out that George is wanted for robbery and brings him back to his ship, but word spreads throughout Boston quickly especially into the anti-slavery community, and a warrant is sworn out for the captain's arrest. He knows that he has to get out of Boston Harbor quickly. He identifies a ship that is bound for New Orleans, and the next morning, as he is leaving to meet up with the ship to transfer George, he, in later his accounts, will write that he notices a ship fast coming towards him, It's full of abolitionists, and as he describes, their bayonets were glistening. So this is an interracial group that is armed, attempting to board this ship to seize George so he will not be returned to enslavement. Captain Hannum, which is his name, knows he has to make a quick decision. So what he does is he has George transferred to the ship that is bound for New Orleans, and he takes his ship and goes in an opposite direction, knowing the abolitionists can only follow one vessel. Unfortunately for George, the abolitionists follow the wrong vessel, board Captain Hannum's ship, realize that George is not on board, and George is returned to enslavement. Oh, that's not the way I was hoping that story was going to turn out. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people feel when they hear that story, and I think it's important to note because it is this amazing story of this chase through the harbor, but... Not every story of a fugitive escaping from enslavement is going to end successfully. Now, you have another story about a man named Philip Smith that highlights some of the dangers that a fugitive could face even after arriving in Boston. What what happened to Philip Smith? So similar to George, once again, Philip Smith is a stowaway on a ship where he is discovered. Abolitionists once again get word of this. But the captain basically swears out that he's going to shoot anybody who comes on board and tries to help Philip Smith escape. But once again, speaking to that boldness and that individual decision-making, Philip Smith decides to take his freedom yet again in his own hands. He, in the middle of the night, will rip a plank off of the ship that he is stowed away on, and this is December of 1853. He will leap into the harbor, and this is right between George's Island and Lovell's Island in an area that was known as the Narrows. Leaps into the harbor in December, swims over using this plank as a makeshift raft to Lovell's Island. There, he's waiting for a passing ship. According to accounts, he actually gets frostbite while he's there, but he does find another ship, and that ship will take him into the mainland, where he is taken away and successfully escapes to Canada. Points out just how much history there is in the Boston Harbor Islands, if nothing else. Another National Park Service site. So if Philip Smith successfully makes it to Canada, that again points at sort of the the network that's helping him once he arrives here in Boston. So 
what sort of organizations existed to help a fugitive here on the Boston end of this chain? Once again, kind of speaking to the idea of the Underground Railroad not necessarily being just... It wasn't ad hoc. It was something that was tightly organized. Yes. Not just unique homes, not just a one secret place that an individual could stay at. This was an organized network. And Philip Smith making it to Boston is a good example of the boldness of individuals on the mainland to help fugitives once they arrived in this city. The main organization in Boston is known as the Boston Vigilance Committee. This is a group that is founded in the 1840s. There had been a few different iterations of it, but the one that is passed, especially after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, has staying power. This is an organization that you can kind of think of as like the financial backing of the Underground Railroad in the city of Boston. With wealthy philanthropists donating money to this group, it's also an interracial group, But they are reimbursing individuals who are helping those escape from enslavement, reimbursing them for things such as providing fugitives with clothing, food, shelter, and passage north to Canada. What is so special about the Boston Vigilance Committee to us today in 2019 is the fact that they actually kept meticulous financial records. What's really interesting about it and makes it, you know, really invaluable is the fact that we have these detailed descriptions of how much money is going to who, who is involved in this network, how often are they involved. It really paints a fantastic picture of what the Underground Railroad and what its network would have looked like here in the city of Boston. I don't really know why they would have kept those meticulous financial (laughs) records because, you know, everybody on that list that's caught – would have obviously gone to prison under that fugitive slave law of 1850. But for us historians today, you know, these records, as I said, they prove invaluable. When we've talked about the Vigilance Committee on the show before, we've highlighted people like Lewis Hayden, Theodore Parker. But you introduced us to a, another figure. Uh, can, you, can you tell people a little bit about Austin? Is it Bierce? So Austin Bierce is a very unique individual as a member of the Boston Vigilance Committee. He was born, as far as we can tell, in Barnstable, Massachusetts, and he was a captain. He spent much of his youth working as a mate on ships trading with actually southern ports, and he got a first-hand look at the institution of slavery and all of the horrors that came with that. In his memoirs um, called Reminiscences of the Fugitive Slave Law Days, he actually describes a scene where he talks about how he was tasked with telling individuals on vessels that he was working, enslaved individuals, that they had made it to a port and that it was time for families to separate. Hmm. He writes... That the shrieks and cries at these times were enough to make anybody's heart ache. He sees this. He finally decides enough is enough and stops his involvement with Southern trade. As he writes, I no longer think it right to see these things in silence. I trade no more south of Mason Dixon's line. He will join the Boston Vigilance Committee and use his skills as a captain to the benefit of those escaping from enslavement. So he's not just refusing to participate in the trade. He's actively, at this point, working against enslavement. Yes. He has a lot of interesting and unique stories. 
he actually will purchase a boat called the Moby Dick. This ship, according to an ad in the Liberator, is used for pleasure parties, fishing excursions. It's actually catered by a man named Joshua Smith, who is also active on the Underground Railroad and is a member of the Boston Vigilance Committee. So what Bierce does is by day he uses the Moby Dick to do these, you know, pleasure parties, harbor cruises, but by night he uses the Moby Dick as a vessel to help stowaways gain their freedom. So there's one story where a boat, once again, from Wilmington, North Carolina, that is anchored off of Castle Island. Word has come that there is a stowaway on board. And Bierce takes the Moby Dick out to try and get the stowaway. He pulls up besides the boat, and the captain tells him that if he boards the ship, he's going to blow him into eternity. Thanks. Yeah. So what Bierce decides to do is he regroups. He goes back to Long Wharf. There on Long Wharf, he can't find anybody to come with him. So what he does, quick thinking, grabs a bunch of hats and coats fastens them to his ship to make it look like he has a large crew he returns to that vessel and says i am properly equipped now hand over the stowaway the captain thinking that he has a basically a massive crew on board hands over the stowaway that stowaway escapes makes his way north and remains free for the rest of his life and the next day according to bierce's memoirs an ad is put out in local Boston newspapers with a $500 reward for the pirates that boarded his ship last night and took away his cargo. That's a great story. Uh, if not for no other reason than just the description of this sort of wealthy captain as a pirate. Also points out <laughs> that harbor cruises and picnics and stuff like that were already a big business <laughs> by, uh, what was that, 1850-ish? Yeah, no, there's, there's ads for uh, like pleasure excursions from Long Wharf to George's Island to Fort Warren while it's being built in the 1850s. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's kind of neat. I know I've looked at some stuff around the turn of the 20th century where there were hotels operating on, I think, Spectacle and Paddocks at that point, and people would go play. They'd take sports writers out to watch baseball games on Sunday when uh, the Blue Laws kept people from playing baseball. In Boston on Sunday, you could have a ball game um, – on Paddock's Island, say, and everybody would go and have a few drinks and <laughs> maybe even some less reputable activities. <laughs> yep. <laughs> with some madams out there. Uh, yep. A lot of interesting history in the, the Harbor Islands. So you mentioned that the consequences got worse after the passage of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. Did you see any change in activities? on the harbor folks trying to to rescue fugitives after 1850 to be honest i think like the reaction that you see especially on the north slope of beacon hill where boston's free black community resided during this time period it's honestly it's a more militant attitude i think you really see a line being divided between people who feel that this law is so unjust and so immoral that they are not going to obey it. They are going to obey a higher law. And you see in the writings again and again of examples of individuals saying that they are going to fight. They are not going to go quietly if there are any federal marshals, fugitive slave catchers in this community. And the individuals who are involved 
you know, on that North Slope, like Lewis Hayden, he's also actually working with Austin Bierce. Joshua Smith lives on the North Slope of Beacon Hill, working with Austin Bierce. The Boston Harbor and getting fugitives out of the Boston Harbor is very much an extension of that North Slope community and its militant activities. That raises the interesting question of once a fugitive arrived in Boston Harbor, how were they being, especially after 1850, they couldn't really stay in the U.S. They had to be sent on to Canada or at least to some place where they could be more anonymous. How were they being transported from Boston to then their final destinations? Was that over land? Was that back over water? Uh, Multiple different ways. Basically, by any means available. If there was a ship that was bound north to Canada, could reboard another ship. If there was a train to make your way north, fugitives would take that train. Meet another individual in another town, say take the train to Worcester. You meet an underground railroad operative in Worcester helping, you know, make your way north via overland routes. And I think you see that in individuals escaping from border states too. It's whatever means are available to help get that passage as quickly as possible. Operatives on the Underground Railroad and individuals escaping on the Underground Railroad are going to utilize them. In past episodes, Nikki and I have talked about three cases after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act where Boston abolitionists tried to free men who were standing accused of being fugitive slaves. And then you point out that each of those cases actually has a link to the harbor, the waterfront as well. Probably the most famous fugitive slave cases in Boston are Shadrach Menkins, who was arrested in February of 1851, actually broken out of federal courthouse by Bostonians, many of which would have been vigilance committee members, many of which lived on the north slope of Beacon Hill and were part of Boston's free black community. Thomas Sims and Anthony Burns, who both were unfortunately returned to enslavement, what they, what all three of them have in common is they all came to Boston as stowaways on ships. The Maritime Underground Railroad was one of the easiest ways for individuals coming to Boston to escape from enslavement. And almost as a, a mirror image of that for the, the attempt, the failed attempts to free Anthony Burns and Thomas Sims those stories end up back on the water as the men are put on southbound ships. But there is sort of a coda to that with Thomas Sims. Is that right? Thomas Sims is arrested a few months after Shadrach, April of 1851. Bostonians plan on trying to break him out of prison and definitely the more radical wing of the Boston Vigilance Committee. You know, within that organization itself, Not everyone is willing to quite literally break a federal law, but there definitely were some. uh, Lewis Hayden, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and Austin Bierce. Sims is going to be returned to enslavement, and the attempt to break him out of the courthouse has failed. I I believe you talked about this in one of your previous episodes. Yeah, it was a while ago. I I think probably in February of 2017, we did a a show about that. And, uh, but you can remind our listeners what happened. There was a failed attempt to break Thomas Sims out of the courthouse. The vigilance committee actually planned on stacking a bunch of mattresses underneath his prison window. But when they went to go implement this strategy, prison guards had actually fastened bars to Sims's window. So this plan did not, was not going to work. So regrouping, the plan that they come up with, once again involving Austin Bierce, was to have Bierce purchase another ship, 
because the Moby Dick had become too notorious at this point, known as the Pigeon. Austin Bierce was actually going to then take this vessel, and when Sims was put on the southbound ship known as the Acorn, Bierce was going to intercept that ship and grab Sims and help him once again gain his freedom. But unfortunately, what happened was the federal marshals, afraid of something like this happening, got Sims out in the early hours of the morning, and by 5 a.m., before abolitionists could convene, Sims was put on that ship, the Acorn, and was sent south back to enslavement. But as you talk about in your previous story, uh, there is a happy ending to Sims's narrative as he will yet again escape and will be back in Boston in time to actually watch the 54th Massachusetts march out in May of 1863. The attempts to free Anthony Burns and and Thomas Sims were not successful, but they really do point to just how radicalized this network of abolitionists had had gotten by that point. And you pointed to a story that does have a, a happier ending with somebody named Elizabeth Blakely. Can you tell us about her? What Elizabeth Blakely does is her story, once again, kind of brings it back to the idea of the individual. It brings it back to how bold and how risky something like this was, and how impossible this decision must have been to make. Elizabeth Blakely will escape from Wilmington, North Carolina. I've seen a few different reports. One identifies the fact that she was afraid that she was going to be sold. Separation from family. You see that coming up again and again as a reason why people are willing to risk such grave consequences to escape. She will get on a ship. She will be a stowaway. She's in a space later described as two feet wide. It's dark. You can only imagine what is going through her mind when all of a sudden her enslaver, her former master, believing that she is on board, will smoke the vessel out with sulfur and tobacco three separate times, walking around yelling that he knows that she's on there. She stays on that ship. She does not come up for it. You can only imagine how suffocating that must have been, how terrifying that was. It's almost a torture position to be in without the smoke. Being forced into such a constrained space would already be torture without even having been basically the 19th century equivalent of tear gas pumped into the ducts. You know, I I know that myself, I would be extremely claustrophobic in that. I can only imagine what that was like with sulfur then also coming in. But she managed to stay quiet. She did. She stayed on that ship. How long would her passage have been? So it was supposed to take a few days. It ended up taking weeks. There were tough winds, but she, she persevered. She made it to Boston. And we know this because of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society's records. They held their annual meeting at Faneuil Hall in 1849. Elizabeth was there. They brought her on stage. And she told her story. And as Wendell Phillips later described it, as she is sitting there in that tight, small, dark space, smoke all around her, knowing that if she comes up for air, if she leaves that space... She will remain enslaved. As she said, in her mind, she had two choices, liberty or death. Well, that's a very dramatic and hopeful note to wrap this up on. 
Sean, before we let you go, where can people follow you online or where can they look for more information about uh, the Underground Railroad and topics like that? Yeah, so you can check us out on our website. Uh, if you go to www.nps.gov slash B-O-A-F, there are a lot of resources there that not only explore this story, but also Boston's free African-American community and various individuals that would have lived on the North Slope. Uh, we are also finally starting up our guided walking tours of not only the Black Heritage Trail, but also the Freedom Trail on Memorial Day. So if you are in town, definitely please come to our Faneuil Hall Visitors Center or the Robert Gould Shaw Memorial to grab a free guided walking tour with a park ranger. And then we also have some BPL, Boston Public Library, outreach programs that are going to be going on through the months of May and June. You can get more information about those at our website. Ranger Sean Quigley, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. That about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about the Maritime Underground Railroad, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 135. We'll have period maps of Boston Harbor so you can remind yourself where Spectacle Island, Lovell's Island, and the other landmarks mentioned this week actually are. We'll post a picture of Austin Beers' yacht Moby Dick, as well as a portrait of Beers. Plus, we'll have links to abolitionist broadsides and handbills that were published in Boston during this period. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Discovering the Boston Harbor Islands, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a message at 617-383-9255, and you could end up as our first voice caller to be played on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. Or just tell a friend about us. That's the very best way to help new people discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about relationships between 19th century women that were known as Boston marriages and which some modern observers argue were a precursor to marriage equality. 